1: It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us.
2: All
0: right. Good morning, everyone. You're listening to Green Left Radio. And on the line, we have our hosts, Jacob.
2: And Zane.
3: Hi, uh, Chloe here as well.
0: Yeah, so we, um, I guess before I announce what we have coming on the program, um, I'd like to acknowledge that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandri land of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to pay our respect to Elders past and present um, and that this always was, um, always will be Aboriginal land. So... I guess um, just to announce what we have coming up on the program, um, we have a number of pre-recordings that we're going to be playing throughout, um, possibly after our first round of kind of discussion that we're going to go through um, between our hosts. Um, So we have an interview with Jonathan Seri, Um, who is a Greens councillor, and as a Greens councillor, he has been heavily involved in the campaign at Kangaroo Point Hotel, um, where a number of refugees are currently being held in Brisbane. Then we'll be having an interview with Monica Hart, um, who is uh ASU delegate, um, work um, who is a candidate um, for the Sue Bolton-Morland team, which is a team of community independents and socialists who are running for the Morland Council. But I guess um, the first thing I guess I wanted to kind of bring up is In this past week, um, we've had um, the Prime Minister has announced on July 21st, a number of the kind of anticipated kind of changes to the existing job seeker um, and job keeper payments, which were essentially um, a lifeline that was implemented um, by the Liberal government to curb some of the worst economic effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I guess the first kind of change um, that he's kind of announced is that the JobSeeker coronavirus supplement will be reduced from 550 a fortnight to 250 a fortnight from the end of September, which will basically mean that the weekly payment that people get from Centrelink um, towards the start of October will be up to $400 a week, as opposed to um, the 550 a week um, that people are currently getting with Job Seeker. Another sort of interesting kind of change is that the JobKeeper subsidy um, will be cut from 1,500 a fortnight uh, to 12,000 a fortnight for full-time workers and 750 a fortnight. Twelve
2: hundred.
0: Yeah, 1200, yes, yeah, sorry. 1200 a fortnight and 750 a fortnight for part-time workers. And, um, just to comment on this, and I might leave, um, might, some other comrades might want to, um, comment on this as well. Uh, one of the funniest things, um, early on is Alphany Albanese and the ALP have been going a bit, have been very critical of, um, the Liberal Party's, um, implementation of the JobKeeper payment and, their criticism has been that the JobKeeper payment, because it was a flat rate, was paying some workers undeservedly too high, um, which was a bit of a weird criticism on the radio because essentially, um, okay, what that means, well, um, just for um, listeners' information, JobKeeper, um, for those who, for workers who are eligible to get it, to get it, um, it offers a flat rate. So basically, whether you work 10 hours a week or 20 hours a week or 40 hours a week, you are entitled to uh, the flat rate of a thousand and five hundred a fortnight. And essentially, yeah, Alphany Albanese was criticising the Liberal National Party for actually giving a, a generous flat rate to all those workers. Uh, which I think is a bit ridiculous because it's basically attacking the Liberal Party from the right, mm. and at the same time, uh, I remember listening to Anthony Albanese justify that. And then, as soon as um, Scott Morrison announced these changes um, on television uh, to JobKeeper and JobSeeker, he basically justified the flat rate right by saying that you know we had to make it a flat rate. Right. Um, because, you know, there's a lot of workers, quote-unquote, who had um, second and third job, um, um and, you know, we needed to help out those workers because there was a reason why job keeper you're only able to get JobKeeper from one employer. So, yeah, that, you know, in just one fail s- sweep, um, Scott Morrison justified the flat rate while also justifying uh the attack, the tax on workers that would come later by reducing the rate of JobKeeper.
2: Mm. Yeah, it's ludicrous. I mean, I think it's important to think about the, the whole point of this economic stimulus, which is everyone's staying at home. There's a contraction in economic demand because people aren't going out and buying stuff at shops. And so, The whole point of economic stimulus is to artificially keep demand in the economy happening, to keep the economy ticking over. So this whole thing of trying to scrape a bit of extra money back, claw a bit of money back from casuals, as you say, it's really unfair to people who work two and three and four um, insecure part-time jobs and get a little bit of money from each who are now going to only get They're $750 a fortnight from one of those three or four jobs. And we'll go back to abject poverty. The whole point of this stimulus is to stimulate the economy. And you do that by putting money in people's pockets, not by being a tight ass. So it just defeats the purpose of the stimulus in the first place. It's just lunacy. And yeah, it's just such trashy Yeah, I can just see these, like, analysts in the, in the Labour Party meeting room going, oh, this is smart politics. We're going to outflank the Liberal Party on their right. Just such tosspots. Like, (laughs) fancy being such a tight ass. Casual workers we know have got very little super. They've got very little savings. There's a whole generation, hundreds of thousands, millions of workers who may never be able to purchase a home. And they're celebrating. Oh yeah, we we clawed back another you know few hundred bucks a fortnight off the lowest paid workers. Well, well done, pat yourselves on the back, you assholes.
0: <laughs> yeah, well I think it, it's um what's kind of interesting is um in the same kind of announcement as well on this whole job on the whole overpaid job, casuals job keeper kind of question. The Scott Morrison government has already made it clear that they will not be cutting payments midway. So all workers will be experiencing or will get the full benefits of uh the top the elapsed time that they promised, i.e. till the end of September. Uh unless you're a childcare worker like myself. I've already lost my job keeper payment, unfortunately. Um but yeah, that's um, that so I think, you know, the the fact is um The, the Labor Party have not really added really anything to the debate. And in fact, the federal government, um, the federal government has basically just, you know, acknowledged it as a, as a criticism. Um, and then, you know, essentially just changed, um, changed tack in, uh, from towards the end of September with this new, um, JobKeeper system. And actually, I think one sort of thing I'd like to comment about, about the JobKeeper changes is, they they they're designed in quite a deliberate way. So basically, the nature of JobKeeper, because workers will gain a flat rate no matter how many hours they will, no matter what hours they worked, um, basically allowed employers to reduce the hours of workers who might be earning over 1500 a week, or increasing the hours of workers who might have worked less um, than the $750 a week um, that they would normally earn. And I guess the part of, um, part of the JobKeeper changes is essentially it is to give employers more flexibility in terms of, you know, as the COVID-19 pandemic is sort of loosening a bit, which it's not actually, I mean, when you look at Victoria, but the, the hypothetical, the COVID-19 pandemic is, you know, dying down, um Employers have to get, oh, we'll get back to work, et cetera. So it basically allows the employers more flexibility in terms of controlling the hours of the worker. And, you know, one of the, the arguments that the, that the Scott Morrison government often puts, um to the media is the reason why we have to decrease the pay of JobKeeper workers, um is because we don't want to accrue a huge debt in terms of the government. Now, yeah, yeah, well, the a one reason one reason why that is ridiculous and I'm not going to reference mm modern monetary Fury, because I think there's actually another analysis that that is a bit um, that is kind of better one of the issues though with that is why, why I think the government is being completely dishonest when they talk about government debt is the purpose of a flat rate like JobKeeper is that it actually saves money on administrative costs Mm. because they're now going to a multi-tiered system. It actually adds money to the actual administration costs, which actually just demonstrates to me that the federal government is actually lying when they say that this is about saving money. This is actually about giving more power and flexibility to the bosses who are employing workers so they can actually you know, produce more profits. Um, so I think that's where I think the government is being deliberately dishonest when they talk about the national debt question because really when you're going to a multi-tiered system with all these sort of eligible requirements, you're basically adding administrative costs, which the government is more than happy um, to will because going back to the point I was saying earlier, this is really the JobKeeper changes are about giving more flexibility to employers and not necessarily about... You know, benefiting the interests of ordinary, um, ordinary working people.
3: You were mentioning um, Anthony Albanese. Al- Anthony Albanese is that how you pronounce his name? What uh, no, well, you
0: it correctly. <laughs>
3: yeah, a, correct. a, a quote. One of his quotes was, "You know, he him, him expressing concern that eight hundred and seventy-five thousand people um, have been given more money now through JobKeeper than there were." Than they were before the crisis, like you said, he was saying that this is adding billions of dollars to the deficit, and that they never made that never made any sense apparently. Um, but I, you know, I guess what doesn't really make sense is the sixty billion dollar job keeper windfall. Um, if everybody remembers back in May, the Treasury, you know, made what they called a significant error. Um, that saw the JobKeeper subsidy only, um, you know, going to 3.5 million people, not 6.5 million people mm. as anticipated. And that it would, that it would cost $70 billion rather than $130 billion as they had planned. So, you know, the Morrison government was wondering whether to bank or spend the $60 billion savings, um, from its, recalculated uh wage subsidy program and there was no intention of extending job keeper to universities or, or casuals um who have been with their employer for less than 12 months um you know this mainly affects again temporary migrant workers and international students who have been left out of the the wage subsidy and yeah the federal government seems to forget that it's because of these 2 million taxpaying migrants that more than, you know, $100 billion has been generated towards, you know, the so-called um, Australia's gross domestic product each year. So it's it is it's a human rights issue. There's really no excuse for these recent announced cuts. The government should be expanding or should continue to expand the wage subsidy payment to all workers who need access to it and yeah just i mean it's just this is what happens when decisions are made in the name of economic policy and progress i mean i don't really want to get into that but it's it's just neoliberalism at its best uh the, these these cuts mean just pushing more people into poverty slashing tax rates for the rich and it's just an attack on working conditions and workers
0: Yeah, I think well one of the one of the other changes I noticed um and I'd like to just quickly make this point um is um one of the job seeker changes which seems quite generous um is basically job seeker um job seeker on um, when the payment is changed from the end of September um, will now allow unemployed people to earn up to three hundred dollars a week. Now, in some ways without their payment being affected. Now, in some ways that might seem generous, but it's almost like a blatant um admission um that unemployment benefits are basically gonna be used to subsidize and expand low wage precarious work, um, which I think, you know, is a bit it's totally outrageous um and in fact you're gonna it's gonna create certain divisions in the working class because basically some people on jobkeeper would be like wow i i'm i'm actually especially part-time workers you're receiving job keeper i'm basically earning less than someone on job on job seeker who is um who is base who is getting um who is getting um who's able to work only 10 hours a week while we're, and get and he gets more money and he and they get more money than me
2: I think you'd call that a perverse incentive for people to actually quit their job, stop collecting JobKeeper and get on to job seeker and then uh you know, potentially go back to their job and earn a certain amount per week doing that instead of um yeah, staying on job keeper. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh it's pretty It's pretty ridiculous. And I just think it comes back to the whole point of this stimulus is to keep people being able to pay their rent, buy groceries, pay their phone bill, pay their electricity bill. You don't do that with austerity. You don't do that by cutting people's payment down to $750 a fortnight. It's not enough to live off. So it just defeats the whole purpose of all these stimulus measures i mean i know you you're, you're, you're uh, critical of modern monetary theory, Jacob, but one of the underlying principles of modern monetary theory is that if there is a I, like i don't think that it's just a Keynesian thing that can only be applied to capitalist economics, so I think that it's quite relevant to socialist or marxist economics other some some Marxist economists agree others disagree, but one of the main ideas between, behind modern monetary theory is in a situation like this where you have an economic downturn, you have lots of unemployment, there's a modern MMT advocates a job guarantee. So not look kind of halfway between job seeker and job keeper. There's just a publicly um, operated job office and you can go in there and there's, you know, 20 different jobs. You could be very democratic about it. It could be a committee to come up with new jobs for people that are unemployed. And so, whenever there's an economic downturn, there's automatically government deficit spending to create uh, a job guarantee to create employment so that that aggregate demand is still there, so that people are still able to keep paying their rent and buying stuff and it keeps the economy cycling over. So, yeah, it's just, I, I just, it's so, it's so dumb that they're, Implementing this austerity on the lowest-paid workers.
3: Yeah, and if the yeah, sorry, same. No, you go. Yep. yep. No, I'm just. I was just going to mention if the if the federal government can afford to spend more than two hundred and seventy billion dollars on the military to fight wars, um, they can certainly spend less than half of that amount on coronavirus subsidies during a global health crisis. The only the only war we should really be concerned about right now is is fighting COVID-19 and making sure everyone's, you know, everyone has their basic needs met um, because of these cuts, job seekers will soon have to survive on like as little as $40 a day or a hundred or 815 a fortnight, which is below the poverty line.
2: Yeah. And, I think and that, that's the difference between, between job keeper and military spending is job keeper stays in the economy and it does its job as a stimulus mm. military spending gets turned into super expensive jets and missiles and stuff which sit in a bloody shed and it's like it takes this money out of the economy and locks it up in this destructive horrible thing which was a part of the George Orwell's book 1984 he's talking about how The the world has been divided into three main kind of warring groups that are always at war with each other. Part of the thing there is the surplus created by the workers, by society, gets turned into bombs and stuff and then fired at each other and destroyed. And it's this way of stopping the workers keeping their wealth. You turn into bombs and it gets locked away
0: yeah and I think another un well that said though there is another reason why um capitalist states spend a lot of money on the military, and it is ultimately to assert uh the interest of their of their nation state um because for every sort of imperialist country, they basically want all the the corporations and the capitalists to accumulate their wealth within their own nation state um, and yeah, investing in military is able to, is a way of asserting the interests, especially in the context of, you know, with U- the US being decimated by this global pandemic, uh, and, you know, a rising, uh, and China, which is a rising, um, global economic kind of power getting a lot, um, or the kind of US imperialist states would have a sort of political material interest in, you know, Asserting their own military might and yeah, spending sure. money on the militaries, of course, yeah. But I think your point, your point still stands. But obviously, there's another reason within the logic of the capitalist system why, um, why cap and um, why they spend mon- nation capitalist nation states spend money on the military or excessive amounts. Okay. Right. Well, I'm going. I think we might um. Tie up this discussion. Um, so you're listening to Green Left, um, radio. Um, and I might just go play a quick announcement and we'll move on to the next part of our program. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne's voice of dissent. 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial, streaming live at 3CR.org.au or on 3CR oh, Digital in
4: Melbourne.
0: You're listening to Green Left Radio, and for the next part of our program, we will be playing a recording of an interview that was done by Sue Bolton um, of Monica Hart, um, who is uh, a candidate uh, for the upcoming council elections. So we had a bit of a discussion about her experiences, and well, yeah. So I hope you enjoy, listeners, and um, I'll go start playing it now.
4: Um, And for listeners, um, I'm interviewing uh, Monica Hart, who is a union activist who is standing uh, for the Moreland Council later this year on the Sue Bolton Morland team ticket, uh, left and progressive ticket of um, activists standing in the council elections. Um, so first first off, uh, Monica, it would be great if you could just say a little bit about your background of activism. I'm aware that you led a big tram strike in the early 90s and were uh, a big part of the campaign to stop the closure of the upfield line. So it would just be great if you could give people a little bit of um, background about yourself. Um, just
1: a wee bit, Sue, I think sort of my activism um if I want to put it back in a context, it began um, in North Queensland. In oh, 1970s. in the Red North. <laughs> in the Red North, indeed. Great book. Great book. Um, so it began actually in the in the nineteen in the nineteen seventies, um, living up in North Queensland at the time of the Alfred Peterson government, um, and I suppose at that time became very involved in um, a lot of. Um, Community, the, the intersection, again, perhaps with community and, um, and, um, and political issues. And that was, um, you know, a really, I guess, a wonderful beginning to my, of part of my late teenage years. Um, other, and then I'd, I'd lived in Ireland for a period of time. So, um, again, being part of, um, incredible issues there during the period of the hunger strikes. Um, and then um, coming to Melbourne and ending up on public transport and the tramways. So a long period of maybe 12 years working um, across in the industry as conducting and bus driver and tram driver, and also in the union. And that was the period, um, I guess right through the 80s, we saw... A lot of um, attempts at that time, particularly um, around the removal of, of a lot of, it's incredible when you think about it, the removal of train lines, which was so high on the agenda of each successive government that would come into power. Um, but of course for this area, that was and I wasn't living in this area at the time, but it, that was the Upfield line, so that um, I was part of the... the um, the union at the time in terms of being very active. I'd been an active delegate and then um, worked as an organiser and president of the union at the time when there was um, an enormous attack by the Cain government um, across all aspects. Um, conductors were to go, um, station staff were to go, um, there was captain the guards um, and then there were a, no- a number of um, train lines which the Upfield was one of them. So, uh, that was a very, you know, deliberate attempt to basically, I think, um, crush the impact of unions um, around public transport. And um, the the strength of that campaign, of those campaigns, would have been the community union um, organisation that formed the catalyst to really be part of that pushback. Uh, and you had, I mean, on the upfield line, you had activists out there doing leaflets. You had the train drivers, all part. You had a great, a great unity. Um, great marches up in, on, um, along Sydney Road at the time, and a lot of great lobbying. So, um, and I was working in the union office at the time. I can remember the. Um, fellow who headed up the Public Transport Union, it was really, um, the Public Transport Users Association um, who I don't think was necessarily started out even being sympathetic to unions but he seemed to make it his second home. Was, was, that and Paul Mees?
4: was that well, Paul Means? It
1: was Patrick O'Connor was, uh, okay. and um, but, um, but Paul was um, very involved at that point too but Patrick was sort of the front line in terms of the media but then Paul took a um, a bigger profile as time went on, and um, Patrick had health issues. But it was it was that wonderful, um, uh, and that's and also the part of acknowledgement of differences on things, but an ability to to work around what was what was a, a common goal um, and unity between community and the unions. And that that's sometimes challenging for unions to do that, because sometimes get a bit fearful of community activism as well, because it, it certainly can. Um, Threaten their sense of control at times, I think as well. Um, Yeah, so um, challenging, challenging times. But um, the outcome is that the well, the uphill lines a little bit in a state of disarray at the moment with the changes to the um, to the overpasses. But yeah, it's still running in effect. In effect. Mm -hmm.
4: Well, I was wondering, Monica, if you could say a little bit about your experience as a emergency housing worker. Uh, I understand you work on a 24-hour crisis line and you have been involved in, um, you know, trying to find emergency housing for people who are in crisis. And I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about That issue and also the impact of COVID-19 on the homeless community or or people on the verge of homelessness.
1: Yeah, for the last probably about five years, so I've been working in, um, we are part of it. It's a, a, it's a 24 hour crisis centre. Um, and we work across the whole state of Victoria. So we're an emergency response, um, after hours, but, um, Significantly, um, during the daytime, we also become um, a link. We're actually on a a homelessness line. So we're actually picking up calls again, um, predominantly across the state, and linking people and their concerns and their issues back into their relevant housing service. So we certainly um, get an idea of the um, absolutely... um, crisis that's across Victoria um, with homelessness in um, incredibly busy, incredibly um, demanding work and often with. Um, I think it's easier for us, we can respond in a crisis, we can um, and effectively what's happening across the state is you're using private hotels um, to respond to people, uh, private hotels. Um, and I guess what you're seeing is that um, what we experience is basically you become like a funnel for the whole of the state, whether it's people being, dischar- you know, so you get a, a sense of like the people being discharged at a hospital, people who land out of the prison system on a, on a Friday night or a Saturday. Uh, they've got a magistrate's court system that sits till 11 o'clock at night. Um, and so people of after hours uh, with very with no resources in terms of so it, it shows you I think the absolute demand and, and the system that that's at crisis level. And of course, if you look at see so what we're dealing with is a crisis, but what that reflects is is an overall crisis, so not just an after hours one you've got something like probably 50,000 people on a waiting, at least 50,000 people um, on a wait list um, for the public and community housing at the moment. Uh, I think the figures talk about what that means in terms of people here. are homeless, it's probably about 100,000 people because that would be a lot of families. So you could actually fill um, the Melbourne Cricket Ground, mm. MCG. With the numbers of people, when you think about what a big gain is, it's just about 100,000 people for a gain. That's the number of people we've got um, on the list um, reflecting the the, um, need for housing. Um, The reality would be far higher because I would say say most people that I would talk to are actually not even on the list now. It's seen as like, why am I going to bother putting myself on a list for 10 15 years. Um, and sometimes you can convince people it's worthwhile because you get a sense of, of their ageing or whatever and half the people on this would be high priority, at least half would be high priority. So people who, in, who are on those lists now would be, um, I, I would have to say that most women who are fleeing domestic violence have a very short term short-term connection perhaps into um, accommodation if they're lucky within the family balance system but most I'd hate to put a figure on it would be very very high most end up on the on the roundabout of the, the housing and homelessness system very very high a lot of people being accommodated in hotels um paying the housing service will pay say 50 percent we're talking about a motel that's charging 100, 100 a night, 130 a night. Um, someone is paying out of their parenting payment or out of, out of their payment. They could be paying 300, 400 dollars a week just for accommodation, insecure accommodation with the family in a motel children. So that is um, the stark reality of what is happening across Victoria that's I think because families are sometimes lucky enough to get into a motel room and maybe they're there for a month then the housing service runs out of finance to be able to sustain that so then it may be into um, another situation of couch surfing for a period of time until that becomes untenable and then maybe back into that roundabout of a housing service um, a lot of housing services now don't even accommodate single single people. Can't assist single, typically single men, um, and so you get the, the huge overflow literally onto the streets. Um, and that's it in a nutshell. To be quite think that that's um, and I guess what I was talking about was maybe a bit pre-COVID. Uh, that was the scenario. You put COVID into that and you get a whole different, you get a a whole nother level on top of that. Um, Happy to talk about COVID as well on top of that. Um, And the COVID situation has now seen, I guess, money being, money being put into the system. So um, a lot of people now were being accommodated in motels at the beginning. Um, That was through March and April. Um but then there's there's a lot of pressure on housing services to actually being being able to maintain and sustain that. So we've got this again this situation of people who might have been supported for a month or two, um, again, most of them contributing say fifty percent of the cost of that. and then when that housing service when when their funds dry up, then it's again an exit onto the streets. Um, and then I think we've seen a little bit of an influx back into hotels again. Um, but hotels are going to go want to go back into their own sort of market base as well. So, um, you know, once we saw a bit of the um, restrictions being lifted um, as part of COVID, then people were being exited out of the housing, out of the hotels as well because we were seeing, I guess, more of an option for tourism again. So it meant that the hotels were actually now saying, denying access to, um, people that we previously were able to get accommodated. They would, we could no longer get that. So it's, it's, um, the level of complexity out there is huge. So and that's,
4: the impact, the impact is huge. Massive, massive. So that's, massive. um, One thing, uh, I think a lot of people who've never had anything to do with housing services, especially emergency housing, would actually be surprised to find out that emergency accommodation isn't free. Like, I think it is the um, impression of a lot of people that um, emergency accommodation is free. And... So, what would happen in the like that those amounts that you mentioned, and I think I did hear a man who is has been put up in a hotel talk about how the hotel keeps changing how much they charge, although that might be dependent on how much the um, housing service is able to pay, um, but how do people on a youth allowance, which is tiny, like even less than you start um, or I'm not sure how much people get um, released from prison with um, in f- financially. Like I, I used to be $250. So that's not going to last many nights of emergency accommodation in a, in a hotel. Um, and then I understand there's an issue of um, hotels um, that used to accept um, homeless people in crisis and don't accept them anymore and I think you mentioned to me that the other day that um, now that there's starting to be some positive diagnoses of COVID-19 amongst homeless people when hotels have to close down to do a deep clean sometimes they're refusing to take homeless people back into the hotels so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about all that. And and what do people do if they're not entitled to New Start allowance? I'm thinking of um asylum seekers, international students, migrants on temporary visas, people who can't prove their identity to Centrelink, because maybe they were born in a war zone or or lost their birth certificate, um and people who've exited state care. So um that indicates a real crisis.
1: And there's, there's, and yeah, I mean, so you've, 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 you've thrown up so many issues there, Um, and, and all of them very real. Um, You just talked about um, exit from prison. Um, Exit from prison is exactly that. Um, Some, most times there's, there's a half, a half payment that comes through to people on their day of exit, but not always. Sometimes there's, there's a dilemma with that. Um, or you know someone's not been they they've actually come straight out of court and so they don't go so that's not set up particularly um, where they've come from prison into the court and then the um, court finishes that night at six or seven eight um, they actually um, walk to us usually at that point in time so we've got no no they've got no accommodation no payment um, often in those circumstances so we so I I, I think you you know, to understand about what's happening in terms of um, those released from incarceration. That's that's virtually um, they walk into and stay, walk into homelessness, come out of prison, walk into homelessness, and the majority would stay in homelessness. Um, certainly, and yet, because you're right, there might be accommodation set up for a few days. And then the only option that would be um, available um, would be... Um, rooming house or boarding houses um, and um, most of them are just unsustainable living environments. Um, a, you know there's a, some out there that are a little bit supported those that are run through community organisations um, and can provide a lot more stability um, but, and so it's that, a whole nother you kettle know, of fish. Um, but in terms of those When you're talking about people who are not eligible within the system, um, and the group you actually didn't mention there as well is New New Zealanders. Yeah. So New Zealanders who, um, usually, I guess, work very well together to try and, and support each other, but then, um, and working often in particular, um, industries as well. But once you get unemployment hitting into, um, hitting into either individuals or a number, the, there's no protection. We've actually been involved in, um sometimes the only thing is to get people back home. But, but, or, and I guess the sad thing is that New Zealand is no longer home, because many, many been here for many, many years. Um, and there's, you know, women who have, had um, their children here, all born in Australia that um, when um, relationships break down or whatever has occurred, but particularly the, the thing I think most of New Zealanders is when they lose income.
5: Um, mm-hmm.
1: they have absolutely got no, no backstroff um, um, whatsoever in that system. Um and and, and yeah, yeah many many of sometimes forced back into New Zealand. Um but all of those issues, particularly asylum seekers, um uh, yeah all of all of all of that group fall into um, just an absolute. All of that fall into an absolute number. Um Trying to resolve something individually, sometimes it's there's not even there's no clear answers, um, mm-hmm. no clear answers at all. Um, in terms of the other issue with um, hotels, as I said, um, when we've had um, positive testing. Um, we've had two quite large hotels we were working with but um we no longer and none of the housing services um, can utilize those services now um because and i guess they will be yeah they've either closed their doors to um, homeless people or um i'm not sure how viable they are at the moment I um, but certainly we've lost um, points of, points of referral and points of, of, of um, access of So our sort of ability to come up with options, um has been really, really reduced recently. Um and I, I yeah, I don't know where that, where that's going to go necessarily. Um, particularly now we've got the irony of COVID being on the increase and we've actually probably got, we've got less options and back,
4: mm-hmm. back in April. Um, so, yeah, so I was sorry. wondering if you might comment on another thing, which is, um, now the government's introducing, making it mandatory for people to wear masks from Thursday, which I think is necessary in order to combat Covid nineteen spread, but that because the approach is a more punitive approach, which is cops out in the street, finding people. Yes, they've got some big orders of masks coming in, but I gather they're for health workers and disability care workers. So um, what I'm thinking about is the question of public mm. facilities and offering of um, free masks, free ha- hand sanitizer um having public toilets open all hours of the day and night having shower facilities available for people um because i'm i would be worried about um police finding people without really adequately educating people my understanding in vietnam is the police rather than finding people they give people a mask when they see people without a mask um I don't, yeah. I don't think that is happening here with the Victorian police. So I just wonder about, um, the question of facilities, even laundry facilities for people who might be sleep, I'm talking here more about rough sleepers rather than people in emergency accommodation at the moment. Um, what you, you know, might want to say about that, those issues. Yeah. I
1: look, I, I, um, yeah, we've had to we've had to grapple with with some of those issues as well. Um, or when I say we, I guess I'm talking about sort of the broader community organisations too. Because I, I worked down in St Kilda, and one of the things has been um, has down there has been that um, well, in effect, you know, our at the service that we had, we were always provided um, access, you know, toilet access. We've had to limit some of that um, as well um we had showers but now they've set up um another sort of a shower system where um that goes down in in parts because you always you can't just you can't just open the lid you've also got to set up issues around safety you've got to set up that you've got your cleaning um, particularly now with COVID and we know that COVID is now in the homeless community so it's um and I guess that's a thing you can't, it, 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 it requires a response in some way that you can, and it, it depends on where this comes from. I mean, luckily the organization that sort of is, is connected to us, they have actually um, looked at some alternatives for showering. They've set up a couple of hours in the day. Um, they've taken it out of, of, of a, in, into a different environment to try and facilitate that. So there's an absolutely correct in what you're identifying there's an absolute need and it's about how you attempt to do that in a way that also tries to keep your community safe as well Um, because that's really paramount and even you know we we, we're an open service still um, and really conscious even you know when people come in we give them masks in our waiting room and stuff and and really try and um, address that in some way so that we're not saying we're keeping the staff safe, we're trying to keep our whole community safe, everybody, and I think that's the um, and there's there's gonna I you know, I think we all fear the when we've got um, hotels in that horrid that we may return back to seeing people on the streets again at this point in time when we when we need more property. Mm-hmm. Um so that sort of um direction is, is critical, but I think, I mean, the whole way through, you know, and it's a challenge, but the whole way through it, everything, there's um, been a difficult process um, in terms of, I guess, policies, or the options being there at the time they were required. Um, we'd also face the issue of concern of how do we, when we know that we've got... Um, a homeless person in the hospital um, where do we go for that person because we were also saying we just can't we can't place someone in a motel because that we're concerned that cleaning everything's not going to be adequate so um, where do we go where do we go for people in within our homeless community who um, are going to test positive um, and there has been some um, Age care facilities, ex-age care facilities um, that have been opened again to um, to to try and cope um, for, for that pop for that group. Um, but I think at some, yeah, I think they're largely full at the moment. So there's there's so many strands to it. So that mm. are, you know yeah, it's not it's that if you do open up any options, you've got to then put your resources in. To ensure mm. that their, 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 um, their health issues are acknowledged and, and addressed and that they're monitored, they Um, yeah, you know, when you think about, um, your surfaces and stuff, that, that becomes really critical. Otherwise you just spread something in the worst way as well. Mm. But I think your thrust is correct. That's what I'm saying. Mm. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Well maybe we might go on to um the question of the council elections. And so I was wondering if you could um explain a little bit about why you decided to stand for a council as part of this um left and progressive ticket. Um Well, because well, that's very simple, Sue. <laughs>
1: um you know, I was very, very um it's it's absolutely important to have um, to have you re-elected back onto council. Um, it is you know the the work that you have brought to council um, over these past many many years has been um, extraordinary. Um, and for me, it's about um, a seeing you re-elected to position because I think what you have brought is a real combination of the feeling of um put the local into council but you put the local in a way that, the, that places the concept of local within a broader a broader agenda of social and political um understanding um and that rather than just being a bum on the seat and that that is is really critical and i think that when what's important is that this, I see this is an election as a way to really build on the work that you have done. And so you're building not around an individual, but you are actually building around the, um, I think some of the, the commitment and the, and the principles, um, that have been, that you've been able to engender and bring to Melbourne Council over this, this period of time and the, the commitment that the, the, I think the Politics and political understanding of linking um, the local issues into um, a broader understanding a broader understanding of state of, of, of government and we' this past period has seen such a change that it makes you even wonder what the concept of local is about to, about to some extent um, but we've seen such uh, I guess a market Driven philosophy that's been pushed to, by the government over a long period of now, and that eventually started to, to influence um, what we have You know, influence what's happening at a, at a local government level as well. And I think um, it's not easy to bring an understanding of those issues into the local government arena, but I think you've managed to do that. And part of what I see this campaign is to keep that to keep that to get to keep that focus there, to keep that perspective there. Um, otherwise, you know, even local government then becomes just uh, um, I don't know, a what do you it? A very whittled down sort of um limit really like a, a just very quite powerless in many ways. And I think it's that connection of, of the local into the community um
4: Which is really important and which is an important part of this campaign well maybe following on from that, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you see as being some of the key issues um from your perspective, which would be good to take up on council.
1: um well I have to say I think the um, the policies that have been put the policies that have been put together um. As part of the bolton Mormon team, I think I think they're exciting policies through, um And if if I think about, um, I think there's so you know they they come together very well. Um, and we were talking about one of the things that's been in in my mind um, recently is I kind can't. Of Every day I guess is part of my work. I'm thinking about what are the impacts um, of COVID and I don't think we've even begun. We haven't even begun to see the real impact of that. Um, we're, we're looking at major changes now that's going to occur within um, job, seeker, job seeker payments. The fallout from that I think is going to be on many different levels. I'm pleased that we've got policies that seek to, um, in some way, acknowledge that in terms of, like, the impacts on on people within in and I think, you know, issues around um, rate relief. It's hard to know. I think largely people who are renters are probably more likely to be affected, but I don't think we can make that call. But so we think that there is some acknowledgement of that, of the financial impacts. Um, that's really important that that's 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 seen and understood um in the in the context of, of um council um the other part of that is I in terms of housing I've already talked a little bit about that previously so that um the the impact around covid um is undoubtedly going to mean a lot of i think renters under extreme extreme pressure to actually um, be able to maintain their housing, and I think that fallout is going to be, if not immediate, um, that once September hits and then December and into March next year, over a prolonged period, um, that is going to be key. And that's, I guess, against a broader context of the issues that are facing um, lack of public housing and um, the changes to Moreland, um, the um, increases of home affordability, the increase in home affordability, the um, increase in rents in this area. So then you're adding on the additional um, COVID issues. So I think that to me that highlights the um, enormous pressure that's going to be here in Moreland around um affordable and sustainable housing and the pressure that will either force people to move out of the area or into homelessness. I think it's it's incredibly it's it's very, very real. Um and I suppose sometimes it's hard to think, well what does that mean for what does that mean for individuals and what does it mean for council. But it certainly um I think it puts a lot more pressure back in council to start to think about about housing um, and to think about how we as a community um, are, going to, are going to address it and move with it and I think that this current crisis it has built that into the public eye uh, far more than before it was there. Um, but I think it gives in some ways um, a necessity as well as opportunity to start to, to really face what we're dealing with in terms of housing, what that means in terms of push for government um, around public housing um, and what does that mean around motions such as the affordable housing policies which are there as part of development that really um, are never really addressed or um, they're, they're a pretty vexed issue too because they all get cut up in the back of this massive development massive development, um, so enormous sums of um, enormous money being made out of our land um, here in Norman, yet the benefits that come back into the community. Um, and so I think those sort of um, those, those wider policy issues um, are very very critical and I think the fact that um this team has some ability to to understand and raise those issues um is really important. Um and and so I mean that that's that's one aspect that I think with the intersection of, of issues too. I think that um when we're talking about sort of a market agenda, I think particularly council, council workers, um the enormous push for the, the privatization, the, the contracting out of services, that, that's, that's not going to stop. Um, that becomes an, again, an important point of policy issues, because if you look at that whole sort of notion of where you go with subcontracting and accountability, um, you know, we're seeing now the, um, issues of what happened with even why we got so much COVID now, what we, what went wrong with the whole, um, sub-contract, subcontracting out of security, what went wrong with the hotel scheme? So we're seeing some of the some of the chickens come home to roost um, against um, successive policies that that have been part of a market a market driven agenda. Um, so the intersection of, of what that means for council, I think, is very real. Um, my background is public transport. Um, you never, you never ever stop being um, an advocate, or a, you know, if you work for public transport, it's, it's in your blood, and I'm a user of public transport. Um, so again, um, you know, a strong push in this area for what, what, what are our needs? You know, around the uphill line. Um, always looking at what we can do across with tram routes, bus routes to extend services across Melbourne. That's that's really key. Key, I think, is as part of what we need to be looking at. And um, you know, all, all the policies that exist there too, the policies that exist around environment, tree canopy. Um, you know, the issues around parking, all of those, I think, are very important issues in in this election. Very key issues in understanding our community.
4: Well, just following on from something you mentioned earlier, you mentioned when you were active in the Tramways Union that um, governments, both Liberal and Labor, were ripping up tram and train lines um, and there actually is quite a big debate in Moreland, and I I imagine it's in all of the inner city councils about, you know, wanting to reduce cars and so forth. Um, but it seems that the focus in order to reduce car usage is all on parking, and there's very little uh, focus on public transport and expanding public transport so I'm just wondering if you'd maybe like to um, comment on that whole public transport issue a little bit more of um, you know the fact that there used to be um, a lot more public transport infrastructure and now they're having to um, face restoring some of that and the impact that might have had on you know car usage. Um.
1: Yeah, certainly. I'll just go back and correct one thing, Sue. They weren't ripping up, um, tram lines. They oh, were, just um, train lines. Just yeah, tra- yeah let, let's just put that one on. Yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. It was train lines at that point. And that's not, that's not that long ago. Um, which, which is, um, which is interesting. Yeah, that was train lines. Um, look, that whole parking, in, you know, it's, it's a, it's a wee bit of a, a 30, I think. Um, to be quite honest because um the very reason that people have cars is um you know it's okay if you work might be and um, if he works in the city then okay you can get on the tram but if you if he works out in as as and it is for people in um, i mean we're a changing demographic in, in some ways around Melbourne, but um certainly there's there's people i know who work in the food industry for instance. now that, that some of that works way up and I, i'm talking about in the um some of that works way out in the western suburbs so if you want to talk about how long it's going to take you to get there on public transport if you want to add and some of that works shift work too if you want to add three hours or something to your shifts to get to work and come to back well well and good that you know um I'd hate to be any anyone trying to argue to people that um, that's how they're they're you know we're talking about quality of life. Um, I think there's a lot of people who would love not to have the expense of a car quite frankly in their life at times, but um, the way things work, that's you know someone who wants to get you know I I suppose when I I think about um, you know even my work with people who are forced into homelessness. Um, the reality of it if you know time and time again the question is okay if we're going to put you in in X spot when your kids go to school how do you how are we going to manage that for you we have to put you in a hotel so so the reality the reality is that in terms of ordinary lives in terms of where people in terms of people working in terms of where their kids go to school um, in terms of how they go about their business and life, I think many people will try and use public transport where they can. But we, we're, we spread across a very large geographic area here in Melbourne. It's a big city. It's a big city. So in, in people with disabilities, I mean, um there's just many people depend in part, not totally, but in part on cars as part of their lives just to survive and to work. So we have to have, I think we have to have a dual understanding, we have to have um, certainly a need to push around public transport issues, that's that's just imperative um, but in but at the same time we need to understand the reality of people's lives. so that the two go hand in hand to, make, to my mind.
4: Sorry, I forgot to unmute. Um, I was going to ask you next about how you think your um, union activism, your support for workers' rights over many years, um, and even your experience um, in Ireland where there are very um, deep roots um, of community, grassroots community kind of struggles in, in Northern Ireland, I'm assuming it was Northern Ireland or? Uh, I lived, I lived in, in both. Yeah. In both, in, in Ireland. Um, yeah. yeah, if you could sort of talk a little bit about how you think those experiences, both as a union activist, workers' rights and, um, having been part of the community in Ireland in the past, what right, inform your approach to council work?
1: Um, I think the, the intersection, the intersection of, I think, I think the, the, the strong part of it is, um is community. I think you just used the word C. Um and it's about what community means and it's also putting community in a wider community in a wider context. And it's um I don't know to me it links the, the small things in our lives with, with the bigger picture. And I think that always when I think when you, you need to have a good understanding of that bigger picture in order to, they feed each other. One's not more, they feed each other They They go in sync. So when you've got strong community, when you've got strong activists and understand community, then you build somehow what happens with that is that it, it cuts through. It helps understand what's happening on the outer layers that affect that, that community and vice versa. I think the the often the, the political understanding that you often have of, of um, wider agendas, wider of a, a political philosophy, um by necessity should mean that working close to a community and, and understanding the need for community voice, and community understanding, community participation. Um, is an intrinsic part of uh, part of your politics so that the two are always, two are never, um, the two aren't different from each other. And um, I think that's probably been a very strong, consistent theme for me and it's, it's probably because um, part of my life's always been in community. Living in, you know, being in North Queensland and um, small little, you know, not a great big town anyway like Townsville, um it, it reads, it read the tool and that, that had, that theme. even working within the, um, public transport, we're like one big family, um, in some ways, um, even the crisis work, you know, it, again, there's, you know, there's a, there's a sense of, um, interconnectedness, um, with all, everyone we work with, um, and it's also seen that the, the wider political issues of, of what's happening um around housing rather than homelessness i I talk about housing because it's understanding that in terms of the basic human right and seeing that when we had when we had a society that had an understanding of the role of public housing um the outcomes and the um the ability of people to um, have more productive lives and their families and that was, was a lot better and that's that part of my lifetime but we've lost that. So for me, yeah, I, the two the two sit very closely together. So they feed off each other.
4: Well, thank you, Monica. We might end that there. And for anyone who's listening, um, we're going to have a campaign volunteers meeting this coming Saturday at 2 p.m. It'll be an online meeting as everything has to happen at the moment um, online via Zoom. Um, people can find the Zoom link if you go to the Sue Bolton Morland Team Facebook page, there's also a website, um, Sue Bolton Morland team as well, um, so you can make contact with the campaign and find out about the campaign meeting um both on the website and also through the Facebook site. Um so we'll just end that now. Thanks for it, Monica. Bye.
0: Good morning, listeners. You're listening to Green Left Radio, um, and you are just listening to an interview with Monica Hart, who is running... Um, he's a candidate for the Moreland Council elections, running for the Sue Bolton-Moreland team, which is a team of community independents and socialists led by socialist Moreland councillor Sue Bolton, who was conducting uh, the interview uh, about... About the upcoming council elections, about what she stands for, why she's running for the election, and some of the important political um, um, history and stories that is important to her. So yeah, Um, for the next interview, I'm going to be playing a recording of an interview with Jonathan Sree. Jonathan Sree has been part, um, is a Greens councillor based in Brisbane, who has been part of the campaign to free the refugees who are currently held at kangaroo point um which is a hotel where refugees um are currently being held in detention um who are unable to leave um their their hotel um their rooms and leave the hotel and has been the subject of a massive grassroots campaign demanding that they be free um so yeah hope you enjoy
6: we're here outside the Kangaroo Point Detention Centre. Can you just I mean, briefly explain what's happening here?
5: Around 120 refugees are currently being detained in a hotel at 721 Main Street, Kangaroo Point. The hotel is its really a glorified motel that's been converted into a prison. So this is certainly not luxury five-star accommodation. These men are being held multiple people to a room, really cramped conditions, no space for exercise in and they're largely confined to their rooms for most of the day. The hotel even has a small swimming pool in the backyard, but the, the government doesn't even let them use that. So it's really much more like a prison. I think the word hotel is sometimes misleading. These men have been held in detention mostly for about seven years now, in some cases a little bit longer. Most of them were previously held offshore in places like Manus Island and Nauru and were brought to the mainland under the medevac legislation because they all have serious health issues, whether that's mental health or physical health conditions. Over the last couple of months, uh, the men started protesting, holding silent protests on their balconies, and residents responded by holding our own actions on the street as a show of solidarity. And those solidarity protests continued weekly throughout the COVID-19 shutdown, and now the have emerged into a 24-7 blockade of the site. So we know the government is trying to relocate some of the men held here to higher security detention facilities. We know that there are still open conversations about potentially even relocating some of these men back to Christmas Island or up, other offshore facilities. And so part of the purpose of the blockade on the ground is to prevent those forced transfers. Our specific intention is that if the government tries to move some of these men to high security facilities, we will physically block the roadway and block those cars from leaving the compound. The other big benefit of the blockade is that it provides a sense of moral support and solidarity with the men inside who for years now have felt like they're forgotten. So the mere fact that so many residents are willing to spend time on the ground showing their support is a huge morale boost to the men, who many of whom are suffering severe mental health issues. So there's quite a practical, tangible, immediate benefit to having an on-site presence just in terms of the mental health of the men inside. Above and beyond that, though, the blockade serves to maintain ongoing community awareness of the issue, to maintain continued media interest and thus ensure that this issue doesn't get swept back under the rug. So a couple of weeks ago the
6: rally you were speaking about both the injustices in the past and how people can ask themselves how can how can injustices like that happen and also you're talking about uh you know i guess the the power of people power to actually to make progressive Mm. changes can you make some comments about those things now
5: i think a lot of australians have been inoculated to ignore just how serious these human rights abuses are this is not a small thing that's going on on our watch this is hundreds and hundreds of refugees who have a legitimate fear of persecution and who ought to be granted asylum, being held indefinitely in detention for no reason. This serves no public benefit. This is contrary to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Refugees. It's uh, contrary to the Convention Against Torture. So this is a pretty severe and significant systemic abuse of human rights. And it's basically just crept up on us gradually over many years. Piece by piece, this system of incarceration has been assembled and I think people have just looked the other way for a really long time and it, I think, illustrates how a populace can have their consent manufactured gradually without them even realising it. And We often look at what's happened in other nations or at other points in history and we say, how did the people allow this to happen? How did the government get away with this? People knew this was happening and yet they did nothing. And often we feel this almost contempt for those people. It's like, what were they doing? Why did they look the other way? Did they not care about these human rights abuses? Did they not care about these injustices? And yet right now a very similar thing is happening right here on the ground in our very city. And so that obviously raises the question of, well, what is our moral duty in these times? Can we content ourselves with signing petitions and writing submissions? Obviously, I think the answer is no. I think we need to be doing more than that. It's not enough to just vote at an election once every three or four years. It's not enough just to post on social media. We need to engage in other more direct forms of activism that put substantial pressure on the nation state and on the major political parties.
6: I mean, actually, just responding to what you said then, I mean, one thing that occurs to me about how this policy has been, how they've been able to get away with this policy, mm. I mean, obviously the refugee rights movement has won a number of concessions over the years mm. and to me I think it is striking that it would have be it would be impossible for this policy to be implemented without the ALP support mm. if the ALP had stood up against mm. what the Howard government was doing and then hadn't capitulated under Rudd and Gillard and then you know I mean, that just put puts them in a difficult position now to sort of their, their own policy in government makes it impossible for them to Yeah exactly so, to
5: so so most of the issues that people are protesting about here have bipartisan support at the moment The ALP's rhetoric has been a little bit softer and arguably a little bit more ambiguous, but the current regime we have of locking up refugees indefinitely has fostered under the auspices of both the major parties. And I think that's important to acknowledge that this isn't just the Liberal Party. Labour is also really complicit in this stuff. Um, I think what the more interesting question for me, though, is that in a political landscape where both the major parties are pretty firmly entrenched in their current positions and this is not yet a major election issue, what can we do as people on the ground to mobilise more community support but actually also to translate existing community support into tangible outcomes? Because, yeah, sure, right now, probably the majority of Australians are barely aware of this issue and certainly wouldn't be swinging their vote over it right now in this this particular political moment. But there are still tens of thousands of people in this city alone who object to what's going on here and who are really concerned. So whether or not they are a political majority is perhaps slightly irrelevant. They are a substantial constituency. And the question is, how do we mobilize those tens of thousands, possibly hundreds of thousands of people who already care to actually take forms of action which will be effective? And that's why I've gradually come towards the view that mass civil disobedience is necessary and perhaps has been one of the key missing elements of previous generations and iterations of refugee rights advocacy. I think for a long time, a lot of the thought leaders within refugee advocacy spaces have adopted a more incremental reformist approach where they've been reluctant to rock the boat too much and where they've sought to maintain a seat at the table. Now, that's not to criticise any individuals or any particular organisations, but there's been a general trend where a lot of the organisations which are most active in the refugee resettlement space and the refugee advocacy space are heavily reliant on government funding and don't want to speak out too strongly in public against the government for fear of jeopardising those funding agreements. And so in a context where the, the biggest players are essentially too timid and the major parties are firmly in lockstep around this issue, it falls to activists to be much more vocal and perhaps almost antagonistic in order to draw attention and to shift the Overton window and push that conversation along. And I think it's in the last few weeks we've seen activists who are willing to not only take to the street but occupy the street and remain in the street that there's been much more media attention on this issue, which is in turn provoking political responses. What do you think is a,
6: is a, is the, is the is the preferable refugee policy and how can we win majority support for that
5: Mm. um so my view doesn't really depart strongly from the australian greens and you can look up the australian greens policies on on their website but in a nutshell i think we need to have a much more open position where any refugees who arrive on shore whether by boat or plane or whatever means have their claims assessed promptly and are immediately granted asylum and can remain in Australia long term. That's the starting point, that refugees who show up in Australia should be granted asylum. Above and beyond that though, we need to have clear pathways regionally for people seeking asylum to actually get to Australia. Um, People often complain about, oh but refugees coming by boat, it's very risky, we don't want to be encouraging these dangerous sea journeys. Well, if you don't want to be encouraging a dangerous journey, provide a safer, alternative pathway. If we if we were really concerned about people drowning at sea, we would have giant cruise ships stationed in Indonesia and, and ready to take people across to Australia on a regular basis, or planes or whatever. The point is that the solution to deaths at sea is not to have a hard border approach, it's to, to provide safer pathways. But I think it's we can't separate refugee policy and immigration policy from broader conversations about how the Australian nation state is structured and how the economy is managed. Right now, we have a political system that enriches a privileged minority at the expense of the vast majority. So people are struggling to pay the mortgage, people are struggling to put food on the table. That's not because there's not enough to go around. That's because we're not a wealthy nation. It's because a small elite minority are hoarding wealth and power for themselves and then turning people against one one another, telling people to blame the refugees for their own financial difficulties. So really, uh, a utopian anti-capitalist program is about saying, yeah, there's more than enough to go around and we don't have to choose between helping the refugees or helping the homeless. We don't have to choose between supporting new arrivals and supporting First Nations sovereignty. We can actually have a better world for everyone if we simply make the big end of town, pay their fair share and redistribute that wealth fairly throughout society.
6: And I guess one thing in particular, I think some sections of the refugee movement or, I guess, refugee advocacy have been prepared to compromise in recent years on the question of boat turnbacks. Now, mm. you mentioned that. I mean, mm. I think that's an important thing to be specific about. Mm. I mean, I guess you just... Yeah,
5: did... I, I think it's abhorrent that we would turn back boatloads of refugees as soon as they enter Australian waters. That's not something that we should assent to. It's not something we should even contemplate as a reasonable step forward. Um, the argument in favour of boat turnbacks is that you're discouraging people from making risky sea journeys, but that is completely ignoring what happens to those people after you turn them back and isn't dealing with the fundamental issues of why they're fleeing persecution and war in the first place so and the deaths in detention all of that and and let's not forget the refugees who get turned back often end up in really bad detention center situations in countries like indonesia it's not like those people who are turned back and go on to live a good life somewhere in Southeast Asia, um, they become undocumented migrants in countries that are, are very hostile to their very existence.
6: What would you say to people who say that a local councillor shouldn't concern yourself with um, issues like this, this is a federal matter, it's not a, not a matter for local government?
5: I would say that not only is this a matter that every local councillor should be concerned about, but this is an issue that every single resident and citizen should be concerned about, because this is our government enacting systemic human rights abuses against thousands of people on an ongoing basis. So put aside levels of government, it doesn't matter who you work for or what your level of responsibility is, you have a moral obligation to stand up and speak out against these kinds of injustices. I think it's particularly valuable for local councillors to speak out because we are directly connected to the local community, but we also have the legitimacy of elected office. And I think it's important for more city councillors to use their platform to raise these issues and recognise that human rights abuses aren't just a federal government issue, they're not just a state government issue, they are a whole of society issue. And as a local councillor, I've been able to use the platform of elected office, but also the resources to shield and support this community campaign. I've been able to provide PA systems and gazebos and practical on-the-ground support that makes this community blockade more sustainable. And I think that's a really important role. It's not up to elected representatives to lead these social movements, but we need to actively support them. And using the resources of the nation-state in whatever ways we can is a powerful and subversive act.
6: Anything else you want to say?
5: Just that I feel like this movement is still growing. It's really hard with any kind of community campaign to predict exactly what the outcomes will be. And often it doesn't look like you're going to win until you're suddenly winning. There's often this sort of period of uncertainty where no one's quite sure what's going to happen and it's hard to see how the community pressure on the ground is actually going to translate to a tangible outcome. But then suddenly, sometimes in the space of weeks or even days, all that built up community momentum and energy translates to a massive policy shift or a broader social change. And so our job as activists is to build the infrastructure, build the foundations, create the conditions where those big shifts can happen so that when the political moment is right, we're ready for it. And I think that's what's happening here on the ground in Kangaroo Point. It could be a month, it could be six months. It's hard to know, but we do know that more people are taking an interest in this issue And pretty much for the first time in my lifetime, I'm seeing hundreds and hundreds of people who are willing to risk arrest and engage in disruptive civil disobedience about the issue of refugee rights. That's not something we've seen in the last decade, at least in Brisbane. People have been willing to attend Saturday morning protests and sign petitions, but we're now seeing large numbers of people who are willing to block roads in the CBD during peak hour if necessary. And that kind of willingness to engage civil disobedience is a very difficult thing for the government to resist long-term.
1: This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit.
0: If you'd like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au support or free call 1800 634 four. Two zero six.
2: Arise, you workers from your yeah. slumbers! Arise, you prisoners of want! For reason in revolt now thunders and it lasts since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstitions! Serve all masses! Arise! Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the, the commies, commies are back. back. Reds underneath your beds and that.
1: Crap.